right, welcome back to our series in Jonah. Grab your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one so that you can follow along as we're coming through the Scriptures today. Uh, down the middle row of seats, there are two Bibles underneath every seat. If you don't have one, go ahead and grab one of those. You can find the, uh, the book of Jonah on page 502 as we get started. And uh, you can keep that Bible with you if you grab it and are using it during our service today, considering our gift from us to you. Jonah chapter 4, we're going to read all 11 of these verses out loud together. You guys ready? I, I can never tell. Because y'all aren't as responsive as I want you to be sometimes. But then I look out and it's like, well, they're looking up. They're just going to look at the screen. Come on, Jeff, just do it. <laughs> I understand. All right, let's read together. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for a beautiful day, chilly day here as we approach uh, the Thanksgiving holiday and all that goes on with that. Lord, we thank you for the gathering of your church today. And uh, Lord, we thank you for your gospel, the, the good news of a God that loves us enough to die in our place for our sin. God, we pray that in this Old Testament book today that we would hear, see, and receive your gospel, that through this story, this, uh, this narrative of a man who ran from God, that we would see ourselves and that you would bring us to a point of confession and repentance of our sin. And, uh, and more, and Lord, more importantly, Lord, that you would in some small way today draw us closer to yourself and form us in the image of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. And everyone said, Amen. We all want to run from God. And this is because of the sin nature in us. And this is the way this plays out in most of our lives. We want to do our own thing in our own way, and we don't want anybody telling us what to do. And this really is an issue of control. 
as you scan the scriptures, God demands control of your life. But most of us don't want to let him have it. In fact, we we hold on to it because it's much more safer for us to be in control of our lives than to give it away to somebody that we can't trust. Right. It's much more predictable if I'm in control of me, myself and all that belongs to me. And if I make this personal, this is the way I think about it. If, if I give up control, if I really let go, I mean, what in the world would God ask me to do that I might not want to do? Perhaps you think like that, too. You know, I'll admit that I I wrestle with this idea of control, giving up of myself to to God almost every day of my life. And I would contend that you do, too. Not only is this an issue of control, it's also an issue of trust. A lot of times we treat God like he's 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 an obedient dog. Right. I mean, anybody have an obedient dog? Right. So nobody raised their hand because there, there is no such thing. There is no such thing as an, an obedient dog. But let's pretend like we all had an obedient dog. We would teach him how to, you know, all the, the courtesies that you teach dogs to do. Don't potty in the house. Go outside. Um, don't run away from the, the house. Stay. And then I'm going to walk away and do whatever I, I got to do. And oftentimes we treat God just like this. We want him to stay over here. We'll take him. We'll take him. We'll let him release him from that spot. We want to take him running or we want to do something fun. But for the most part, we want God to stay right there so that we have control over how he interacts with us and how we interact with him. And that really is Jonah. The strange thing is that even though we treat God this way in our interaction with him, the crazy thing is that God still wants to use us. And this is a sign of God's immeasurable grace toward us. And so we've been in a a series in the book of Jonah. Today is the sixth sermon in that series. And we're going to conclude the book today here in in chapter four. Uh, I've said this before. I don't struggle with this story at all. There, There are some that approach Jonah as an allegory, as a parable. They think it's metaphorical for other things. I don't struggle with Jonah at all. I have no problem um, of of a man being disobedient and God swallowing up with a big fish and the gastric fish juice and all, you know, all that happens in this story. But let me tell you where I get tripped up. You know, I I see Jonah and his response to, to God in chapter two and then how he seemingly comes to faith, um, turns around, repents kinda. And then in chapter three, God uses this man, Jonah to, to be the catalyst for one of the, greatest spiritual awakenings that this world has ever known. And then, I mean, y'all read it with me. We cross over into chapter four and like, what in the world is going on with Jonah? Could this be the same guy? I mean, this is a prophet of God running from God. And he, he seemed to have like came to his senses. But then in chapter four, this isn't even the same person. He's angry. He's suicidal. It just doesn't make sense. And so as I'm trying to wrap my my mind around what's going on with Jonah, I, I Just combing the Bible, I thought of James chapter one. And and James, the apostle James is writing about wisdom and and faith and how we exercise that. And he says these uncanny words in verse eight, talking about uh, someone that doesn't exercise wisdom is not a person of faith. He says he's a double minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Fix your eyes on that word double minded. That word is the is the Greek word uh, dip dipsikos. I should have said that better, but I can't. 
And the technical definition is that it's a person whose life is characterized by duality that are in opposition to each other. Sounds, sounds schizophrenic, doesn't it? I mean, it's like a person that's living two lives. And I think this really this really gets at the essence of what was going on in Jonah's life. I like to there's a proverb in the in the King James version. For those of you that still read the King James, stop it. Get it. Get a new translation. But I love the way that Proverbs 23, 7 reads in the King James. It says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. There's a connection between what's going on in your brain and your heart. And I would tell you what you go out, what's got what's going on in your brain actually originates from your heart. And what he's saying here is that it's not the mind that's controlling Jonah. It's his heart. He's got two hearts. He's got two souls kind of counteracting each other. He's got a divided heart, a heart with two commitments. And this is the this is the deal about heart in the Bible. I mean, you can go to every book, every chapter, and God is saying something about our heart. And the wisdom of Scripture is that God wants your heart. He doesn't want half of it. He wants all of it. He wants your heart for him fully. And this is Jonah's problem. Jonah has a divided heart. He has two commitments. And this likely explains the, the emotional roller coaster that we that we see Jonah experiencing throughout the narrative of the book that's entitled by his name. I mean, have you ever experienced this? Perhaps, I mean, one day all, I mean, life is going well. You're following hard after God, and then you go to sleep, and the next day, it's like you're not even the same person. You don't feel the same way about God. You don't feel the same way about his word. You don't feel the, way, the same way about the life that he's, he's put you in. You don't appreciate anything that God is doing in your life, and you're opposed to him and all that he represents. Obviously, when we feel like this, uh, there's a lot going on in us, probably more than just, you know, you woke up on the bad side, the wrong side of the bed. But I think this thing of, of James, what he calls a double-minded man, a divided heart, perhaps is what's going on in Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, I mean, he's, this dude is suicidal. He, he asks God, tells God, just, just kill me. Life is, life is not going the way that I want it to. Just take me out of your world. He's in such a state of mind and heart that he feels that he has no meaning in life. And this is really a, a conundrum. Jonah is talking to the, the, the God of purpose and the God of life himself. And he's saying, I, I, don't, have, I don't have any reason to live. I have no purpose. Doesn't make sense. Jonah wants to die because the thing that he's placed his identity in has been disrupted. And what we call that is, is self-righteousness. Actually, there's, there's more than just self-righteousness. It's, it's a functional righteousness. Jonah is depending on something else other than God for his value and his worth. And that really is what self-righteousness is. To find out if you're self-righteous, self-righteous ask yourself this question. I mean, what do I count on to give, give myself a sense of personal credibility? What validates me? What makes me feel accepted? How do I know I'm in good standing with other people and with God? Whatever that thing is, and I would tell you, if that thing that you say that makes you feel good, that makes you feel worth, that makes you feel valued in life, if it's not Jesus, then you have a false righteousness. You're relying on a source of righteousness that um, that builds your reputation, makes you feel good, gives you a sense of value and worth, and it, it's going to crumble because it's not built on Jesus and his gospel. And this was Jonah. This was Jonah. Jonah's trusting himself. Jonah was a self-righteous man. 
And what he's done is he's elevated, he's elevated his ability to determine what's right and what's wrong, especially in regards to, to Nineveh and the people there and their hearts and their souls. And he's condemning God for wanting to extend grace to these same people. And what God does, as we'll go through chapter four, is he exposes Jonah's heart. And so my point is today, after that long introduction, is, uh, is we're all like Jonah. And I hope to prove that to you. I'm trying to prove that to you every week, but hopefully it'll stick today. You know, we, we have self-righteousness tendencies in all of us. And the, the, there are countless ways that we gain value by what we know, what we do, our status above others. And we get mad when God and others don't reward us for uh, the right that we're living out in our life. And so I'm going to list uh, just a few symptoms of self-righteousness as we comb through this, this last chapter in the book. And the first one is you stay angry at God. And we see that in verse 1 and 9. In Jonah's life, Jonah stays angry at God. Let's look at verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And then verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yeah, I, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Two weeks ago, I, I said it was OK to complain to God. I said it's all right if when life is just going rough for you, that you can actually yell out, you know, Lord, just come on now. This is just rough. When we read the Psalms, uh, we, 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 at least a third of the Psalms, it's the, the psalmist lamenting. They're crying out, expressing their heartache, just telling God, the life sucks. It's, it's not good. But here's the neat thing about the, the Psalms. Oftentimes, as they look up to God and complain to him, pour out their cries, woe is me, Lord, are you, will you always let our enemies triumph over us? How long, O oh Lord, will you let the wicked prosper? As they're looking up to God and, and giving these complaints, oftentimes, somehow, by the grace of God, he changes their whole persona and their complaint turns into worship and praise. We don't see this happening in Jonah. Jonah stays angry. Jonah stays mad. It's one thing to, to be angry at God and to direct your complaints to God. It's one thing to stay angry. And that's what happens in the narrative with Jonah. Jonah says, I'm angry, God, and I'm, I'm not even going to be like the psalmist. I'm just going to express my emotion and, and stay angry. I'm going to stuff it all inside. I'm going to choose to be God-centered. I'm, 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 I'm going to choose to be self-centered, not God-centered. And Jonah's issue was he was completely self-centered. In other words, he was worshiping himself, not letting go of his anger. You know, there's a lot of reasons for us to be angry. Uh, I think of one in, in my own life. I mean, what about when tragedy or loss or something bad happens and you don't expect it? Um, no, 2005 and six was a, was a rough year. I deployed as a battalion commander, deployed to Iraq. Um, Larissa was pregnant. Uh, with Zoe. She had the baby. Everything went well by cesarean section. And then immediately after that, she got uh, preeclampsia. So she had to go back into the hospital. And I mean, it was just a, it was a hard situation. Firstly, a hard situation because the army wouldn't let me go back, uh, primarily because I was commanding. And my my executive officer, he and his, he, our wives were pregnant at the same time, almost the same due date, just a couple days apart. It was just uncanny, just weird. And so neither one of us went back. And so just going through that, Months later, my grandma died and my grandmother had gone through a four year battle 
with cancer that was just, it's just eating her body up, just, you know, one body part at a time. And I, I had a difficult time dealing with that. Firstly, again, I couldn't go back to, to uh, memorialize my grandmother with my family. Uh, my grandmother was a, she was a matriarch. I mean, our, our family on my mother's side was centered around this woman. I'm a Christian today because my grandmother prayed for me. I spent every weekend of my life through, through about age 13, I spent every summer with my grandmother. Uh, many, in many ways, who I am personal, you know, character wise, is because of my grandmother who spent time with me and, and prayed for me. And, Upon her death, I mean, I had a hard time with it. And, and if I'm honest, I was a little mad at God. I was mad because I couldn't go home to, to be at my grandmother's funeral. I was mad at her for, for leaving me. I was mad at my family because they didn't keep me informed. I was mad at the army because the army didn't let me go. I was mad at God because he let this cancer eat, eat, eat at her to, to her death. At some point, however, I had, I had to come to grips with this. I had to tell myself, all right, Jeff. I, we can't be mad forever. We've got to go on. You can either worship through this or let this become worse than the cancer that took your grandmother. You can get stuck in in tragedy. You can get stuck in loss. You can get stuck when bad things happen to you. And is, is it wrong to be angry? Absolutely not. But if you hold on to that anger, then life goes on without you and you're stuck in that spot. And getting stuck, what I mean by that is... Simply, you stop looking up at God. You focus in on yourself and your issue, your circumstance. You, you start looking around you and comparing your loss, your bad, your bad condition to, to everybody else's, and yours is always worse. You get in trouble because you won't let go of your anger. The other thing I would say in regards to reasons why we stay angry at God is you know, some of us just won't. We just don't like the way our life is going. We don't like the way it's going. There's a lot of better ways to say this, but this is just the deal. We don't like the decisions God is making regard, regard, regarding our lives. We flat out get offended at how God is orchestrating our lives. Some of you in this room are, are single. You've been looking. You're ready. Got your money ready. Got your house ready. Furniture's all situated. House is clean. Your life is good to go. And you're like, where is she? Where is he? Bring him on, desperately wanting to be married, and it hadn't happened, and you're mad at God. There's some of you here who are married, not happily married, ain't going well at all, and you woefully want to get a divorce, and you're saying, Lord, help me if I go one more day in this. Some of you uh, were vying for a job or a promotion, and you didn't get it, but the person that you absolutely don't like and were praying that didn't get it, got it. And so I think the question for most of us is, is not are you angry, but actually it's what are you doing with your, with your anger? Because in many ways, most of us live life with this low-grade bit of anger all of, our, all of our days. I mean, examine your life. A second way that we, second symptom of self-righteousness that we see is we justify our sin. And I got to tell you, I'm good at this one. My wife reminds me at least once a week. You married people act like you, you don't get this thing too. Uh, you justify your sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. Um, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens as we read more and more of the Bible. We become less impressed with 
the characters that the Bible presents. It seems like all of them are just jacked up, right? In the case of Jonah, we look at his actions and, and as a prophet of God, we say, how in the world did Jonah, being who he was, being used of God at some point in his life, uh, succumb to running from God and doing exactly the opposite of what God instructs him to do? I think it's important to note that Jonah actually, I mean, he didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to be disobedient to God. He, he didn't like put his finger up to his nose and say, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. He wasn't trying to spit in God's face and then turn around and, and leave. That, this wasn't Jonah's natural intention. I, I think it's fair to say Jonah was thinking this. You know, if Assyria, if Assyria is forgiven by God, then Assyria, that wicked pagan nation, is going to do exactly what I have done in my life. They're going to revert, revert back to who they were before. Wicked and pagan. I can't afford for God to forgive this God forsaken pagan wicked nation because what's going to happen is it's only going to take a little bit of time. They're going to go back to who they were and they're going to go back to destroying all the nations that are around. They're going to go back to them and they're going to come to Israel. They're going to destroy us, kill our people, take the temple down and they're going to bring us into exile. Jonah knew that was going to happen. Why? Because he was a prophet. And honestly, that's exactly what happened. Only a few years later, uh, Assyria, although pardoned by God, as we see in this story, ends up uh, defeating northern, the, the southern tribe of Israel years after he defeated the northern tribe. And they destroy the temple, take all the people into exile for many years. Verse 2. We just said verse 2. i got to speed up. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is Jonah is saying this. He said, I don't like the Assyrians. I mean, they're just not good people. I don't want them experiencing your grace, God. And I think it's fair to say Jonah was probably prejudiced towards them. Jonah was a racist. There's a Hebrew word here in this verse that's very important. We sang about it today in our, in our worship. It's the, the word down here at the end of, of the verse. It's, it's the word steadfast love. In the Hebrew, it's the word hesed, and it's God's covenant love for us. We've talked about that word before. It, it basically means that God is promising to, to bless you. He's promising to, to protect you. He's promising to provide for you. And simply put, Jonah couldn't fathom God giving, extending this kind of love, the love that he reserved solely for his covenant people, the nation of Israel. He couldn't imagine God giving that same kind of love to this wicked nation, to people who didn't deserve it. Jonah was justifying. He was justifying his sin in the name of patriotism. I'm an Israelite. I'm a Hebrew. We deserve God's love they don't. And I think we do that with our sin as well. And we often say, I'm not justifying. I really just don't like the, I don't, I like people who are just like me. That's what you would do if you were a racist or prejudiced. Sometimes we justify, other times we just rationalize our sin. When we rationalize our sin, we explain it away. We pretend like it doesn't even exist. Probably worse, and this is a lot more deceiving, is we psychologize our sin. We replace sin with psychological and sociological language. Let me give you some examples. I'm not being rebellious. I just have a hard time trusting. 
Ever said that? I'm not being disobedient. I'm just complex. It isn't that I don't like other people. I'm just introverted. I'm not doubting the wisdom and faithfulness of God. I'm just worried. I'm not immoral. I'm just lonely. I'm just trying to do things that that solve my problem of loneliness. I'm not acting inappropriate. I'm just trying to be real. Sometimes we say those things. And anytime we take the role of judging what sin is and what it isn't, apart from the revelation of of God's word, we're being self-righteous. We're setting ourselves above God and saying, this is right, this is wrong, instead of letting God and his word do all that. And so ponder on this. What what sins are you justifying? And I, I didn't say if, because all of us are doing this in some way in our life. What sins are you justifying? Perhaps what sins are you rationalizing? What sins are you psychologizing away as you're redefining your life? The fourth would be we condemn others. One of the symptoms of self-righteousness, we condemn others. Verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah's in the desert. He built a shelter. It is hot. He's trying to protect himself. I imagine Jonah had a bald head. You know that? I mean, because I mean, there's some, there's some, yeah, you know, semblance of you know, God's kind of shining some sunlight on his head. I think Jonah was was bald headed, and so he's sitting down. I mean, what is he doing? I, I think he's just sulking. He's sulking, waiting for the show. He Jonah is praying to God, Lord God Almighty, bring the thunder. I want to see smoke and lights, make it even better, more glorious than Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted to see uh, Nineveh go up in smoke. He wanted the he Jonah wanted God to fry Nineveh like it, like they were a bratwurst on a divine grill in his backyard. Jonah did not want Nineveh to exist after after he stepped away, and he was waiting to see what would happen. I mean, have you ever disliked someone so much that you were, I mean, that you were willing to pray, God, just take them away. Just do away with them. That's what was going on in Jonah's heart. Um, Jonah's not the only one in the Bible that's done this. In Luke's gospel, there's this account of James and John and the other disciples are with Jesus. Uh, Jesus has already, they've already got the revelation that Jesus is the son of God. They're headed to Jerusalem. And they're north, uh, north of Jerusalem, and they're traveling, trying to get through Samaria. They go through the Samaria, uh, Samaria. The Samaritans don't like Jews, and they forbid them from traveling through Samaria. This is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 54. And we get to verse 54, and the, the, the Samaritans don't want Jesus and the disciples, because they're Jews, to, to walk through their territory. And so James and John say this, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And, and Jesus rightly, he just rebukes them. He says, look, it's OK. We'll just take a little bit more time. We'll go around. I didn't come to condemn, but to save. And if I were to translate Jesus response to James and John, he's basically saying, be careful who you condemn. Be careful who you condemn. Sometimes we can easily judge and condemn people for what they do when that's not always our um, our place to do that. 
Um, you know, there. let me make this excursus for a second. There is a judgment that's ours to make. We, we live in a society, especially right now, that sometimes it's expected we can't judge anything. I think of that just the, the craziness going on with the mayor of Houston um, asking all the pastors. And you guys read that? Asking for all the pastors to submit their sermons so that she can see who has spoken openly about homosexuality. She's uh, uh, confessed uh, lesbian. And so she's in, in many ways, she's persecuting these or trying to persecute these these pastors for what they've said. And all these pastors are doing is just preaching the Bible. The Bible says that I'm going to say it right. And so there there is there are things that we should condemn. We should condemn what the Bible condemns. We should judge what God judges. But we can't go beyond that. And so being self-righteous Self-righteous is sitting above and condemning others and standing in judgment over other people without acknowledging our own depravity and propensity to sin. I mean, there's nothing worse than people judging us. I mean, have you ever felt condemned or judged by somebody looking over you and and suggesting that who you are, what you do is worth uh, their judgment? But I would tell you, sometimes this happens overtly in our lives, but usually it happens in very subtle ways. Think about this. Um, Two kids talking. Uh, so, hey, man, I got accepted to John, Johns Hopkins. What about you? Uh, uh, no, I didn't get accepted there. Uh, I'm, I, I'm actually going to community college. A little judgment there. Oh, you live in a district? You live in D.C.? You live in a district? Where do you live? Uh, I, live uh, I live way out in Fairfax County. Oh, man, you live way out in the county? What? You homeschool your kids? So, uh, what? You're brave enough to send your kids to public school? We do that subtly in our speech all the time, and we disguise it ever so, ever so subtly. We expect everybody to do exactly the things that we do. And when, we, when, when people aren't like us, we, we, we hide it behind kind words, but what we're doing is we're, we're being suspicious, we're judging, and honestly, we're condemning. Revelation 12.10 says this. It says that, the main ministry of, of Satan is to accuse and condemn you day and night. And this is the bad news. Whenever you choose to judge and condemn others, what you're actually doing is you're, you're being self-righteous. You're joining Satan and his team. And this is the deal. You don't want to be on Satan's team because in the end, he loses, right? You don't want to lose, at least not with him. Fifthly, another symptom of being self-righteous. You're being used by God, but you're not enjoying it. You're being used by God, but you're not enjoying it. It deserves to be said that we are supposed to be being used by God. God is supposed to be using you right now where you sit in every area of your life in a big way. He wants you. He wants to use you to make you impactful in all areas of your life, really in more ways than you can imagine. And this is the deal. We're supposed to enjoy it. You know, sometimes my wife, my wife's in the back. She's in the back right now. She's smiling because sometimes I'm standing up here and I don't smile. It's like like I'm I'm in combat. I'm like battling with you all to make my point across. And I have to remind myself, Gee, Jeff, this is this is a get to not a have to. I I there's, a in, there's something on the inside that that actually I I'm I'm the benefactor of getting to open the word before you and, and preach to you. It's a privilege to do that. But sometimes, not just me, but we have this approach to our Christian lives. You know, I mean, as I, as I think about 
the, the landscape of people that get to do things. Um, the subset of people that I often categorize that um, have the worst attitude about what they get to do and seem to have no joy in it are people like us as Christians. Y'all ever met any Christians? Y'all, y'all know any? I mean, we can be some miserable people. <laughs> Can't we be miserable people sometimes? It's just so sad that how we we have no internal joy for the I mean, what should give us the greatest joy of all the people in the world. And God is saying we shouldn't be like that. We gripe, we complain and prayerfully God is using us in big ways, but we're not always excited about what God is doing. And I know why, you know, this is this is what happens when you become a Christian. You, you get in the world of people and whenever you deal with people, it's messy because people are messy. Ministry is messy. And all of you all are ministers in many ways. And in, in many ways, you're ministering to people as you uh, as you receive Jesus and take on the faith. But um, there's supposed to be a joy in what happens in our lives. Ministry is this privilege. It's a get to, not a have to. And so be happy. Smile. Else y'all smile. Nice, nice. But I would tell you, this is a symptom of self-righteousness. Being used by God but not enjoying it is a, is a symptom of self-righteousness. And we see this in Jonah because God used him mightily in chapter 3. But then he's just, uh, he's just turned uh, and, and he's a sourpuss in, in chapter 4. One of the things that we see in this idea of being used by God but not enjoying it is that we're doing things in our own strength. And God has not asked you to do things in your own strength. God doesn't need you to do great things, to do good things in your own strength. He's asking you to do great things in his strength. He is strong so that you don't have to be. You'll find your greatest strength in weakness when you're weak for him using his strength. That's what scripture tells us. God wants you to lean on him, be equipped by his word, be transformed by your mind, be carried by his spirit, empowered. That's how we should be living our lives. And lastly, number six, you love comfort more than people. Um, we love comfort more than people. And sometimes this is a source, the greatest source of our self-righteousness. Probably the most self-righteous people on the planet during the Bible days were the Pharisees. I, uh, you don't, this is not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read a little bit of Matthew 23. Um, Jesus' favorite people to pick on were the Pharisees. I'm reading Matthew, uh, Matthew 23, verses 1 through 6 or so. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit, at, sit on Moses' seat, so do, uh, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger." They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. It goes on. And so here's the issue. The Pharisees, uh, they 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 took the Ten Commandments, the moral law that God gave Moses and the Israelites in uh at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. And they made they stretched it into seven hundred and twelve rules. I mean, just crazy rules like you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because if you spat, 
then that spit would hit the ground and it would move the dirt. And if you move the dirt, you were working on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath says you're not supposed to, you know, honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy, not working. There was this category of, uh, of Pharisees that were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And this is a crazy name to, to call them. They were a special um, eccentric version of Pharisee. And they went around with their heads down because they were paranoid. They were going to uh, violate God's moral law by lusting. And so they chose to look down the whole time they were walking around. That's the name bleed, uh, bruised and bleeding. And they bump into stuff so that they wouldn't. So they wouldn't look at a woman in lust. Isn't that crazy? What, what we see happening there is they elevated their own personal need over other people because other people were, were subject to all these rules that they created. In other words, they defaulted to what would make them comfortable to live life to the, to the neglect of all those people around them. And sometimes um, we do that too. And we see Jonah in that. Verse six and eight, verse six through eight. Now, when the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to, to save him from his discomfort. See, Jonah was bald headed. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Yes, Lord, protect my head. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed the scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah loved comfort. Jonah was like a Pharisee before Pharisees were popular. He wanted to feel good about himself to the neglect of the people who were around him, primarily the Ninevites. He was more excited about that plant that, that, that covered his bald head than anything else. And so here's what God is doing in Jonah. Probably through the whole chapter, through the whole book, but, but pr- primarily through chapter four. God is frustrating Jonah's comfort. And if you go back and read Jonah one more time, you see this. In chapter one, I mean, what is God? Is immediately after Jonah is disobedient, Jonah rushes to a, a, a seacoast town and gets on a boat uh, to, to escape God. And God hurls a wind that causes a tempest on the sea. And then in chapter two, actually at the end of chapter one, God appoints the sovereignty of God, right? He appoints a fish to swallow Jonah up. And then in chapter four, there's the, it, it, God uses the word th- appoint three times. Look at what he does. He appoints a plant and the plant provides shade over Jonah. I mean, the plant just grew up in a, in a day. And then he appoints a worm to eat the plant because, I mean, I'll give Jonah a little bit of pl- uh, pleasure and I'm going to take it away to make him miserable. That's what God was doing. And then he appointed a scorching wind. And this is two, for those of you that have been in the desert, this is two things. First of all, this is a hundred degree uh, temperature and um, just some very hot sun that's beating down on you. And then it's, it's probably a shamal, one of those winds coming out of the north that just sweeps through and it stirs up the dust. And when it's, when it's over, I mean, you're hot, you're nasty, you're covered in orange sand and it's just a miserable experience. And he does all of that to Jonah to prove this, that God is in control. God brought all these things about in Jonah's life to to discomfort Jonah in his comfort, to frustrate Jonah's comfort. And God was doing this. He was reminding Jonah, hey, dude, I'm in control. Hey, Jonah, as creator, I have the right to use this plant to bless you. But I also have the right to, to not bless you if I don't want to. 
Jonah, as much as I have the right to use this plant to bless you, I also have the right as the sovereign over all creation to do what I want with the city of Nineveh. You might think they're sinful, but they're people. The message of Jonah, the message of chapter four is that God is willing to frustrate our comforts as well. God is willing to go to go through extreme, I mean, extreme measures to stir up in you relational, circumstantial or possibly even inward turmoil to help you see how in control he is. He do that because he loves you and he wants you to trust him. What is that thing that you think that you need? What are the ways that you trust something other than God himself? God is willing to mess with that in your life. Perhaps he's frustrating something in your life right now. I mean, it's like a bicycle. Remember your bicycle when you were a little kid had a kickstand? You ever had a kickstand that either got rusted up, you left your bike outside and got rusted up and wouldn't come down anymore, or it just falls off completely? I would tell you God is willing to break the kickstand of your life so that you won't use it as a prop so that you'll trust him. And so what do you do? What do you do if you're like Jonah and God is frustrating your comfort? What I think we see in Jonah is that um, it's what we should do. We should confess. We should cry uncle. The word confession is the Greek word homologale. It's a confusing word. But in the, in the broad range of what that word means, it simply is agreeing with God, agreeing that you're wrong most of the time and that he's right. And that when we trust him, his ways are better. And so you're saying, well, Jeff, well, we're talking about Jonah here. At what point did Jonah agree with God? At what point did Jonah confess to anything in regards to him being wrong and God being right? Well, I don't know. This, I can't prove this. All right. And if you look at scholars, they're going to debate about it, too. But I, I think Jonah wrote Jonah. I said this in week, week one. I said 60 percent of scholars, the book is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it. But as you look at the detail in this book and all that that comes about in it, it would be hard for someone unless they lived through this with Jonah to be able to come to, to write all these intricate details about the narrative of his story and all that happened. And so my take is that Jonah wrote Jonah and this book is his confession. Let's finish up in verse 9, verse 9 through 11. But Jonah said to God, do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, for which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Verse 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand, from their left and also much cattle. God is being sarcastic here. He's, he's saying, Jonah, look, in this, in this city in Nineveh are a bunch of people who don't know their left hand from their right hand. They're going to hell in a handbasket. They're pagan. They don't even know it. They've got pagan gods that they're worshiping. And if you don't, and if you don't think they're worthy of my grace, then at least be weary of the cattle. Okay, that could at least be food for you. He's, he's bringing this point up. And this is really an interesting way for God to finish this book because, I mean, he sort of just cuts it off and, and there's nothing else there. But what I think is, I think this book is Jonah's confession. Jonah is looking back 
by writing about himself, his autobiography for this little stint of his life. And he's saying, dang, what a what an idiot I was. I mean, what was I thinking? God had to bring me to the point where I mean, I I, I, I'm at the lowest of low to realize how much God is in control, to realize how much God has grace for his people, even people that are outside the community of faith. And God was wanting to use me to bring them to faith as well. And so what we're dealing with in Jonah is what Jesus says are the two greatest commandments, loving God and loving people. And I've said this before, you know, we don't do either one of those well. That's why we need God's help. What keeps us from loving God and loving people is that oftentimes we love our pleasure and our comfort more than we love God. We treasure all kind of things apart from God and it wrecks us. And, and the story of Jonah, each one of these chapters is the story of our life. Think about it. You start your week. The, the week starts on Sunday. OK, in, in our calendar, we're going to wake up put our best clothes on. We're going to go to church. I'm going to gather with God's church. I'm going to worship. We're going to hear the word. I might even feel convicted. I'm going to I'm going to confess my sin, repent, take communion, worship God. I'm going to walk out and then my week starts happening. Midweek, I get to chapter three. And although, you know, I'm sort of like, you know, neutral with God, God uses me to impact his world somehow um, despite me. But by the end of the week, I'm in chapter four again and I'm cussing God out because I don't like how I don't like the way God, life is gone. And I'm like, Lord, make me die because this is not going the way I want it to go. And I think just like Jonah, we're double minded. Our hearts are our hearts are divided. I mean, can you see yourself in Jonah? I've said that several times during the series. We are Jonah. We're Jonah in so many ways. But we are particularly Jonah in this in this this view of chapter four. And if this book could possibly be Jonah's confession, this is what my invitation will be for all of us, is that we would stop and we confess. We would confess. We, we would agree that we are Jonah. But more than that, we'd agree that we would agree with God that his ways are right. And sometimes our ways are wrong, usually all the time. Our ways are wrong. We just don't know it. And, you know, First John says that, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, that God, that Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us. That means that there's this, there's this thing that happens as we come to God, agreeing with him and saying, Lord, I got it wrong. You're right. And repentance is, I say, I talk about repentance every week. Repentance is you receiving the grace of God to see that you're going in the wrong direction and you, and you stop. You just stop and you turn around and you go the opposite way. And instead of doing it your way, you run toward God. And I think in many ways, Jonah did this. He left us the record of this book saying, hey, I'm wrong. God, you're right. I cry, uncle. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to repent and I'm going to run to you. And so if you're here today and I don't know, perhaps you have never confessed of your confessed your sin and repented. Maybe today is your day to start running from God. And that you would acknowledge that God's right, you're wrong, and that you would ask God to reveal himself to you. And if you've been walking with God for a long time, perhaps today might be the day for you to, um, to agree with God as well. To agree with him for all whatever is going on in your life. For perhaps how you have, you've lived under comfort. And you don't want God frustrating your comfort. 
And I don't know what your comfort is. But God is frustrating it for a purpose that you might trust not in yourself, that you wouldn't be self-righteous, but you would trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Jonah and for all that we see in his life. God, would you show us, even as we conclude this book, all the ways that we are much like Jonah? Would you show us our self-righteousness? Would you show us the ways that we are running from you? Would you point out to us, Lord God, those way, those things that we're trusting in, those functional righteousness in our life, whether it's our job that provides money or our house that shelters us or how much we know, how much money we have saved up in the bank. And Lord, would you, would you frustrate those? Would you frustrate our comfort to Remind us that if we're not trusting in you, then we have, we have no foundation to stand on. God, we confess our sin, that we are like Jonah. We repent of those sins, and we pray that you would cleanse us from our unrighteousness. That you grab us by your gospel. That we would be satisfied in this life with nothing but Jesus and him alone. And that, Lord, like, like Jonah, the confession, that the, the autobiography of our life would be, yeah, I got it wrong, but at some point I agree with you. You're right, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.